The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Tonight's program is for all who cherish liberty. We'll reveal the untold story and largely hidden practices of authoritarians who have worked inside the United States government to undermine the Constitution and override rights protections since the earliest days of the progressive era. Our special guest has traced the intellectual origins of authoritarianism to its Hegelian roots in Germany and shows how legions of academics trained to hate the American system of government became predominant in the major universities of America, entered government as top advisors, and successfully orchestrated an overthrow of the Constitution's limits on power, which put the rights of individuals in jeopardy from the progressive era to the New Deal to today. Did you know authoritarians endorsed forced sterilization of 60,000 American citizens whom they deemed quote-unquote undesirable and unfit? Did you know authoritarians selectively created monopolies and overcame the constitutional limits on government power the Founding Fathers put in the Constitution to prevent tyranny, thus ushering in the foundation for a socialist state? We'll also discuss the lies told by advocates of the Black Lives Matter organization, Antifa, and the 1619 Project, and the fact that the first slaves in the Jamestown colony in 1619 were not blacks, but whites, and that in the antebellum South, slave owners were not only white, but black. You will learn the inherent failings of socialism, the tremendous cost it imposes on human lives, and the great threat to the survival and success of liberty and justice in America posed by authoritarians such as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Bernie Sanders, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Ed Markey, Joe Biden, and Kamala Harris. Get ready to unveil a detailed strategy for restoring constitutional protection for individual rights and fending off the horrors of a socialist tidal wave now drenching America. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focused Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Divinia Water, Pure Organic Sulfur, Flash Drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas Seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. Jonathan W. Emord is an attorney who practices constitutional and administrative law before the federal courts and agencies. He is AV rated by the Martindale Hubble Law Rating Organization, highest in legal ability and ethics. A federal litigator, Emord has defeated the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, a remarkable eight times in federal court, more than any other attorney in American history. He was lead counsel in the landmark Pearson v. Shalala decision 
holding the FDA censorship of nutrient disease claims unconstitutional under the First Amendment. He is the author of five critically acclaimed books on law and government, including Freedom Technology and the First Amendment, The Rise of Tyranny, Restore the Republic, Global Censorship of Health Information, and The Authoritarians, which is the focus of tonight's interview. He is a guest lecturer at Georgetown University Medical School and Georgetown University Law Center. He's also the American Justice Columnist for USA Today magazine. His website is emort.com, and Jonathan Emort joins us from Clifton, Virginia. Hello, Mr. Emort, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Fine, Mel. Thank you for having me on. My pleasure. May I call you Jonathan? Please do. Well, before we begin, I want to shine a light, first of all, to a portion of the acknowledgement section of your book. You include the testimonial of one of your clients, Donna Casanova. I hope I'm pronouncing that name correctly. And we'll discuss the the story later. But Donna is someone who understands the horrors of collectivism and, and shares her story of harsh conditions, her family experience under the former Soviet Union. And I've shared my own story before of my family escaping communism and living under those stories all my life. But it seems that no matter how many times I share those stories, it seems that people are blind and they say, we haven't tried this here. Why don't we begin with that? Why are people so blinded and not paying attention to the 148 million deaths responsible by communism? Well, I think as with all Bolshevik revolutions around the world, uh, Maoist revolutions, they start with uh, a series of lies and promises that they never intend to keep to induce the people to believe that they present the only alternative to for their complaints. And they usually ride on the back of a crisis. In this country, I think the combination of the COVID crisis and uh, some economic issues that were vexing to people uh, led them to embrace the idea of socialism. As we know from uh, Gallup polls that were taken before the election, uh, as many as six, over 60% of Democrats said they wouldn't mind having a socialist president. Uh, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, leaders of the Democratic Party, publicly announced that they would endorse a socialist if the a party had nominated a socialist for president. And they, there they essentially crossed the Rubicon. That's a first in American history where people were publicly avowing that they would be willing to be under socialist rule. I think that this is a byproduct of uh, people being being essentially led through a series of Trojan horses to socialism. And that is, uh, they were led to believe through the Black Lives Matter organization and the Antifa, both of which are socialist, avowed Marxist, actually, organizations, communist, that uh, that these this rioting uh, was justified or was appropriate in some way, or that protests against uh, the state and against uh, uh, the society that the, the Americans live in was an appropriate way to express their anger over uh, the the uh, murder of George Floyd and against police authority. This fit nicely with the communist uh, goals of Antifa and BLM, 
because they wish to overthrow local governments, state governments, federal government, uh, destroy American history and culture, eliminate religion, uh, and, and establish collectivism, but establish a Marxist state. And so I think people, many people unwittingly went along with this uh, because of their revulsion for racism, but they were actually being used in many respects to be a foil for a Marxist overthrow of the country. And unfortunately, uh, a lot of uh, uh, particularly Democratic mayors, governors uh, fed into this whole thing by showing support for defunding police, which is simply disarming that your enemy, if you're uh, a Marxist, you want the police defunded. If, if people will volitionally do that, then it's a wondrous thing because you can go about destroying people's property and maiming and killing people without any opposition. Uh, and so they proceeded to uh, pursue these goals of defunding the police, ending cash bail, uh, altering public policy so that privileges would be afforded to one race over another and uh, achieved a, a, a high degree of division in society that's unhealthy and um, is contrary to the core values that underlie our nation. Uh, then they proceeded through with cancel culture, uh, disallowing any viewpoints they find objectionable, condemning the speakers who present views that they oppose rather than debate them. And there we have the recipe for a perfect Bolshevik revolution. And traditionally, a country is usually taken over from the top down, but it seems that this time it's being taken over from the bottom up locally, the cities and states uh, first. But who are the authoritarians? Well, they're people who believe in submission to a governing will imposed at the expense of individual rights to life, liberty, and property. Um, that's how I've defined it. During last year's riots, you mentioned BLM and TIFA. They receive a lot of vocal support from the mainstream media, liberal politicians, and big tech companies, among many others. Did it, rem did it remind you of the Bolshevik Revolution at all? It's almost to me as if the same script and players, in a way, are doing the same here. A perfect Bolshevik recipe for government overthrow. Right, and they're not uh, shy about publicly proclaiming that as their objective. Uh, and we see the evidence of it when they try to burn down buildings that are owned by the government, when they uh, topple monuments, when they uh, deface and destroy religious monuments to Christ, when they condemn American history, when they topple uh, statues to George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, uh, when they advance this critical race theory in the schools, when they oppose uh, any suggestion whatsoever that all lives matter, uh, taking the position that black lives matter, and if you dare say any other lives matter, they are quick to condemn you for that. Um, this is an unhealthy environment. This is a sick environment. And uh, we have let ourselves uh, as a nation tolerate this, I think, in large measure because uh, several uh, of the leading Democratic mayors and governors in the country have uh, tried to shame the population into believing that we're a racist society and that we deserve the punishment we're getting 
from those who loot, burn down buildings and, and, uh, and also attack people. And that's just absurd. The rule of law applies equally to all as it should. When we see instances when it doesn't, we should ferret them out, whether it's racism against the white population or racism against the black population. We should be a colorblind society. That should be our goal. And if we make our goal color consciousness to divide races and to subject one race to the uh, control of another, we've defeated the very victories in the civil rights revolution by Martin Luther King and others. And we've resorted to a state of slavery. Socialism is nothing more than slavery. It's slavery to the state. Slavery uh, to the state is the worst of all slaveries because it is monolithic. There's a monopoly of state power. And when everyone is a servant to the state, there is no individual sovereignty. Rights don't exist. You are nothing more than a, a slave to one master from whom you can never escape. And that's the utter horror and misery of socialism. Whether history was good or bad, shouldn't we remember our history so we don't repeat it? What, what do they think they're accomplishing by erasing whatever is left of our history? Is it so that they write their own script without future generations questioning our past? Yes, it's all about power for them. Uh, you would find if you had an opportunity to create an artificial environment in which Antifa and Black Lives Matter actually prevailed and overthrew the government, they would fight among themselves just as all communist regimes have. You would find them liquidating their political opponents, liquidating uh, power sources uh, in the military and in the private sector that posed a potential for uh, challenging their absolute rule. And uh, that would come to pass just as surely as it has in every socialist state, every communist state that has implemented a regime that is comparable to what Black Lives Matter and, and Antifa advocate. Um, Antifa is really a, a, a paramilitary organization that is designed to cause injury. It's, it's, it's a syndicate. It's a criminal syndicate. And uh, BLM has fed into Antifa operations uh, and has promoted them. And, and likewise, uh, Antifa has promoted uh, BLM's initiatives. So this is, this is really a case of a, a criminal RICO type operation and should be treated that way. Uh, and if you get right down to it, there really is no hypocrisy, for example, with the former head of uh, BLM, Patrice Colors, uh, being a, a multimillionaire driving massive amounts of money from uh, the BLM organization and buying properties all over the place. Um, there's nothing uh, extraordinary about that because in a socialist state, uh, only the leadership and those who are chosen politically uh, enjoy the fruits of wealth from the country. And those fruits don't last long in socialist or communist states before universal poverty sets in. As Margaret Thatcher famously said, um, the problem with socialism is that eventually you run out of other people's money. That's it. You run out of people's money. Now, from your book, quote, you say, as they draw ever more wealth out of the economy, they destroy the engine of economic growth, the ability of entrepreneurs to provide employment and opportunity, innovate and uplift the standards of living. And while they condemn wealth, 
They themselves obtain unimaginable riches, living lavishly and turning their political offices into vehicles for private gain through influence peddling, unquote. And isn't it interesting, Jonathan, that at this very moment, our unemployment rate is high. However, most businesses are hiring and have talked to many business owners. They're having a difficult time finding people to fill those jobs. And, and guess what? The common denominator is they're told people are sitting out enjoying unemployment benefits. And there are 11 states where more people are on welfare than working, and yet there are help-wanted signs everywhere. Is this one of the techniques to, to, to keep people dependent on government, one of the techniques to destroy our current system? Yes, expansion of welfare to really essentially become universal is a goal of socialists because they want to redistribute the wealth in society. Unfortunately, it's a dead-end game because if you if you take from those who are engaged in profitable labor the profit, then the value of their continuing in that labor disappears. And uh, it is essentially a disadvantage if they still are allowed to have some profit, they're, they're discouraged from laboring beyond a point. Uh, and as a result, that diminishes productivity and diminishes the wealth of the nation. So you end up with a, a zero-sum game. Ultimately, in the end, uh, you may have universal uh, dependency created by the welfare state if it's universal in its ap application to people. But uh, you end up with greater and greater poverty, and you end up also with massive inflation, as Venezuela knows now well, with over 10,000% inflation. Uh, when the government just prints money and pays people and gives them money uh, for doing nothing or for working as the state would direct, you lack that productive engine of capitalism necessary to provide an ever-increasing uh, pie of, of wealth and opportunity and you end up with greater and greater infighting, again, greater challenges to the socialist leadership, which results in greater repression in a downward cycle that ultimately collapses with the regime being destroyed either by a revolution, again, uh, or by uh, people fleeing the country, which is uh, what we really don't want to see here, but what is what is promised by those in the administration and in the leadership of the Democratic Party when they advocate uh, universal welfare. Um, the squad is famous for advocating these sorts of things, but the Biden administration has been quite sympathetic and has adopted many of the squad's proposals, not least of which uh, is a substantial amount of the Green New Deal, which is the other way socialism works, which is to co-opt industry by outlawing certain industries and creating political favorites like Solyndra was in the Obama years, where they're given subsidies and where they're given uh, government support and are allowed to create monopolies or oligopolies and enjoy vast riches uh, that are undeserved from the standpoint of a market. Um, when you support wind energy and, and uh, solar energy, for example, at the expense of fossil fuels, fossil fuels being the backbone of the, of the world economy, but of the American economy too, you substitute for a reliable, dependable energy source, an intermittent source that's unreliable, and uh, you force the cost of uh, destroying the market's preference on the consumers. 
and they bear the burden of the inadequate energy, but they also bear the burden eventually of the enormous cost of those alternative energy sources. People don't realize this, but the only way solar power and uh, wind power is even affordable at all to people is if the government heavily subsidizes it, which it does. And it would not exist but for uh, further innovations um, in the marketplace today if it were not subsidized because it would be way beyond the ability of people to afford. As it, as it stands, it causes inflation. The greater reliance on wind and solar, it inflates the cost of energy. So if you were to do as uh, President Biden has promised, to eliminate fossil fuels within the next uh, decade or so, and rely exclusively on these unreliable and intermittent sources, you would cause the American people to suffer uh, huge increases in their energy bills, and they would be impoverished. Their, their quality of life would be reduced. The amount of productivity that would come out of business would be vastly reduced, and uh, they would be paying so much in energy bills that they would likely suffer um, a significant reduction in their standard of living. I analyzed the cost of wind power a few weeks ago and could not believe what I found only governments, as you say, could advocate to continue it when it costs so much more than what it produces. Same with electric cars. All these people who think I'm saving the planet, there's no CO2 emissions. But if you had to go back a few miles and find the power plant that is producing that electricity, that's coal, that's oil. Why don't they get it? Well, because it's really just a Trojan horse for socialism. What, whatever works to get there, they don't, there, there isn't a moral scruple in a person's head who advocates uh, knowingly, knowing what you know about the costs, uh, these, these intermittent energy sources because it's so damaging to our, our society, energy being indispensable to the make, making of everything. So it's a big lie, for example, that you're actually improving the environment when you turn to these sources. In many respects, you're act actually exacerbating environmental harm far greater than clean uh, uh, natural gas, for example. Uh, what people don't realize is that, hey, look, these uh, electric batteries that you have have to be disposed of. Where do they go? Well, if they go to landfills or even if they're collected and shot uh, from one area of the country to another, you end up with highly toxic uh, batteries and discharges from those batteries that are put into the environment. You rely on solar panels. Well, what, where, what space is to be taken to have these solar panels? Well, it ends up being a vast amount of space, agricultural land frequently, and lands that are used by various species for their habitats. And so those are destroyed and in place of them come all of these solar panel farms, mass uh, congregations of solar panels that take up more space than several states. And when you talk about the windmills, the windmills actually uh, kill bat populations, bird populations, because the speed with which those turbines move is beyond the ability oftentimes for uh, wildlife that fly to adapt and they end up getting crushed or damaged in their flight by these uh, high-speed turbines. 
And then in addition to that, those turbines too take up enormous amounts of land. Uh, and uh, in the end, they're constantly in need of repair. The metal fabrication necessary to produce these windmills requires massive fossil fuel consumption and the uh, solar panels require uh, the use of rare earth minerals, which are harvested in, in most unsanitary and horrible conditions and cause uh, significant environmental damage in the process. So uh, it's, it's, a, it's a pipe dream that you're somehow reducing uh, pollution to the planet by resorting to these two uh, energy sources, which is the only two they seem to be willing to allow. And instead, you know, there's a, a great free market alternative to all of this, which is simply to afford significant tax reductions to energy companies that in, invent uh, uh, cleaner methods of, uh, of, of energy uh, and to do that as a national policy. And that might result in even more significant reductions in pollution, but it might be dependent upon modifications of existing fuel supplies, invention of fuel, fuel systems that have not even been thought of yet, or other means of innovation. It's a question of trust. Do you, would you rather have energy policy set by bureaucrats who have no experience whatsoever in the energy industry and have no uh, are not affected in the least by supply and demand by profit and loss? Or would you rather have those decisions made by the professionals in the energy industry competing against one another? Not to mention that a lot of these people who come out with a vehicle that runs on water or salt water or hydrogen, all of a sudden we hear about them for a month and they, they disappear or they die under mysterious circumstances. You would think that the Alexandria Occasional Cortex would actually be pro having these people come out and spreading the blueprint everywhere so that they could really save the planet. But all of this is damaging to the environment. You're mentioning, you know, wind. They have oil leaks, these towers that wind up in our soil or water supply or oceans. And these turbine blades, they end up in a landfill in Wyoming. So how are we saving the planet when it's totally the opposite? It's bunk, and it's it's made out of a stack of lies that have been told to the American people. Uh, and lies are the currency of socialists. Um, that's how they get into power. If people read their history regarding socialism, they would see that socialism has never succeeded in the history of the world. Uh, capitalism has been the great force to uplift and advance humanity, freedom of choice, is the great source of, of uh, satisfaction, happiness, and uh, ever-increasing standards of living. When we end up being slaves to the state, when we end up having our choices dictated by government, when we no longer have the freedom to decide how to live and what uh, course our lives will take, we end up being just miserable people, but not only miserable people, we end up being impoverished and with no way out. So. Uh, the problem with socialism is that once it takes hold of a country, even though it's an utter failure and the whole country recognizes it, it becomes extraordinarily difficult to extricate yourself from it. And that's the, the terrible truth of socialism that the socialists refuse to admit because their goal is personal power to become the leaders of a socialist state, their state. 
And if you had them in a room, more than 15 of them together, and they were actually in power, they would be fighting among themselves like cats and dogs, and they would be liquidating one another until there was a totalitarian leader. These socialist states either fall apart through revolution from the outside, or they murder themselves within their ranks and they create a communist totalitarian regime in place of them. Well, history is filled with uh, what you just said. Uh, look at Trotsky, one of the ones who was eliminated by those who were left behind. And the same thing in Cuba, Che Guevara and many others were eliminated until one person became the totalitarian. But my late father always told me to always defend our freedoms here because there's always someone trying to take them. And as a child, you would think, I, why are you saying this? Look, at this country is 200 years old. It'll never happen here. But he said, when you lose your freedoms here, you'll have nowhere else to escape to. And lately, in the past year or two, it rings so much truth to me now, Jonathan. I imagine it does, unfortunately. Um, the American identity, what it is to be an American to the rest of the world, is a beacon of light to truth and to freedom. And we are witnessing groups trying to just take both of those away from us. And that is our most valuable commodity. It is the greatest source of strength in every respect, militarily, politically, economically. The world depends on freedom to defend individuals against the tyranny of states. And the United States has been this bastion of liberty for a long time. And it has been under assault, however, from even the antebellum South forward. Uh, but in the Declaration of Independence, we find the sum of good government. We find the essential characteristics of a good government and uh, those things that are necessary to keep a people free. And uh, the notion that all men are created equal, that they're endowed with pre-political rights, with rights from their creator, from God, and that those rights then are not capable of being taken away. They're unalienable because they come from God. They're not given by the state. And then that among the rights that are most fundamental and protected against the state are those to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, meaning uh, the use of one's property to advance one's liberties or one's, uh, one's desires without interference from the state. And then It is in the Declaration that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. So it is the very purpose of a just government to secure the rights that are protected against government. And then it is that uh, the just powers are derived from the consent of the governed. And this fundamental principle of consent has been done away with by the administrative state. We consented in the Constitution when it was ratified to having power vested in three branches of government. And the, the doctrine of John Locke that was accepted by the founding fathers articulated in the Federalist Papers and became an arguing point in favor of the various provisions of the Constitution, which relied on strictly delegated powers, was that those powers could not be redelegated. Why? Because if they were delegated outside of the repositories of Congress, executive and the judiciary to other sources outside of those, it would defeat the consent of the governed. 
the public had not consented to that delegation. And Madison understood that the uh, co-location in one person or one body of the legislative, judicial, and executive powers was, as he said, the very definition of tyranny. And so we have separated powers and checked powers. And our Constitution is unique in the history of the world. Never before and never since has there been a Constitution that had the origins this one did, which was to divest the very government being created of power to control the individual, invest in the individual, invest in the individual sovereignty, and make the government the servant of the people, not the people the servant of the government, as is the common characteristic of a socialist state. And even in Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution, we find that the Founding Fathers were prescient because they guaranteed a Republican form of government in perpetuity. And now we see as in, in states and localities where socialist regimes are put in place, that they're violating this provision of the Constitution, yet the federal government is doing nothing about it. Under this provision, the United States shall guarantee to every state in the Union a Republican form of government and shall protect each of them against invasion. And on application of the legislature or the executive, when the legislature cannot be convened, against domestic violence. But if that's the case, what happened last year then? I forgot the name of the quote-unquote country that they wanted to establish in Oregon or, or Washington. I forgot where it was. Isn't that an invasion? Shouldn't the federal government have intervened? I would have. Um, you know, if I were president, I would have invoked the Insurrection Act because the local authorities were refusing, if, as you remember, at the time, they were refusing to do anything. They only, they only uh, moved to do something when Donald Trump indicated he was going to invoke the Insurrection Act or call out uh, federal troops to be d dispatched to uh, the CHOP zone, as it was called, in, in uh, what was it, Portland? Right. Um, or Seattle. It was in Seattle. And so um, that is the appropriate response. Uh, if you tolerate violent acts against private property owners, murders, assaults, theft of property, uh, arson, you end up with more of it. That's what we have. And the more you tolerate it, the more it grows. And the more you uh, indicate a scruple in defense of it, the more it grows, because these people are using, they're feeding off of that lack of uh, uh, use of force to envelop the nation in flames, take all the property from private property owners, burn down all the buildings, destroy the governments. They mean to destroy and take over. They're serious about that. They're willing to commit acts of violence to achieve it. We should no longer pander to these people, no longer appease these people. But we should do as, uh, as, as Governor DeSantis did in Florida, uh, pass as he did just a few days ago, sign into law, uh, an anti-riot act, which is most profound. And it is, is quite the retort or uh, response to rioting that ought to be accepted in every state, that we have heightened penalties for those that commit these crimes, that we ought to take away their privileges that the government gives them. They ought to have no welfare. They ought to have no medical privileges provided by the state. 
and Medicare, Medicaid, they ought to have no privileges whatsoever uh, afforded them by the government if convicted of engaging in these acts of destruction against the country. A lot of these people are engaged in treasonous acts where they actually kill someone, uh, law enforcement, for example, defending the country or defending property against attack. And yet, where are the trials for treason? Where are the executions? Where are the uh, long prison sentences? Where are the uh, 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 prosecutions taking place? I don't mean to deny people their civil liberties. I'm the first one to defend their absolute right to have their civil liberties protected in a full and fair trial. But once convicted, uh, they should be uh, sentenced to severe sentences. And that's what uh, Governor DeSantis has done. He's created a just resolution to a problem. We first and foremost must protect the citizens of this country. The, there's no more fundamental duty of government than to protect the lives, the liberties, and the property of American citizens. When we forego that, we have lost it every, everything because then we have no control over the bloodshed over the destruction, over the ruination of people. Uh, and, uh, and we become victims of it, and they gain power by it, and they will do more of it. And these subsidized or fully financed actors feel emboldened by the government not reacting to that behavior. And I've, if I didn't know any better, I would think they're aiding and abetting those behind the scenes. And by the way, I've seen footage myself of buses taking these people in, very organized, wearing the same shirts, the same paraphernalia. And you would think that with big tech behind all of this, they would have the ability to say, two months ago, you were at a riot here, but looking at all the, all the cell phones that are in one area, they will be able to pinpoint who the ringleader is and put a stop to it, but they don't do it. Is big tech behind the scenes because they want to usher in a tech tyranny? I think there's been a lot of action by large corporate America to help finance uh, these movements. And George Soros uh, has been responsible for, through his nonprofits, for funding many of them uh, to become uh, district attorneys and state's attorneys and county attorneys across the United States. These people then refuse to enforce the law, allow uh, uh, crimes to be committed without being prosecuted and basically feed into this destruction of the state because people like Soros really despise the United States. They despise our republic. They want to replace it with a socialist state. And they have massive resources. Uh, as a consequence, a timid government response is simply going to invite more of this. And uh, yeah, I think you're quite right. Much of this uh, the activity of Antifa and BLM in these uh, in these marches and taking advantage of protests, turning things into violence, uh, are um, are activities that are well uh, planned and well financed, and resources are frequently cached in different spots along the way, so that uh, you can take those out at the appropriate time and begin using them. And uh, the most vile forms of violence have occurred in these things. Um, and there's no sincere interest in defending the rights of black Americans because 
oftentimes black Americans are the most victimized in these criminal campaigns. Uh, the businesses you see looted and destroyed are frequently black owned businesses. The people that you see assaulted and abused in these riots are frequently those who reside in the central cities and many times they are minorities. And uh, so if you were sincere in your interest in defending or protecting black lives, you certainly wouldn't allow uh, children to be uh, injured and, and, and black business owners to be injured and people have their life savings destroyed who are ha having to be black. I mean, it's just not, uh, it's, it's not a sign of compassion. It's a sign of abuse. It's a sign that they're willing to allow the burning of the places where black people live uh, and work in order to uh, uh, benefit themselves in their campaign of destruction against the government, which is their ultimate goal, Marxism. So they're, they're indiscriminate in their destruction. They don't, uh, they don't make it a point to avoid destruction of black owned businesses. They don't make it a point to avoid uh, assault and battery against and murder uh, in, against black uh, citizens of this country. And so, if anything, they're promoting the worst of the kinds of uh, uh, horrific racist activities that have been a part of our past. The KKK, for example, resorted to those types of activities and campaigns against blacks. And, uh, and yet BLM and Antifa are doing the same thing, indiscriminately killing blacks and uh, minorities in the inner cities. Isn't what just happened with Congresswoman Maxine Waters the same script that the KKK used to use? And look, at President Trump told people to peacefully protest, and he was almost impeached. And now we have Maxine Waters telling people to just push back if the verdict doesn't come out the way that they want it. Isn't why why isn't her their her peers are not even moving forward with this? And by the way, speaking of George Soros, I spent time in in Asia in the nineties, and in ninety six I was in Malaysia, and shortly after I left in ninety six, we all know what happened. They wanted his head on a platter. He's always the short king, massive currency speculation all over the place. He always wants governments to just crumble. Why hasn't one government leader? taking this individual and put him to justice? Well, I think we've witnessed that there is, has been a history, regardless of whether it's a Republican or a Democratic uh, government, uh, in which the bureaucracy has advanced this movement towards authoritarianism because it's in their own self-interest. And as in the book, I document the origins of authoritarianism in America. And when we get to the part of the book, uh, the authoritarians, where I get to the discussion of the bureaucracy and its growth in the late 1800s, 1880s, and its emergence in the 1880s and its growth through the 1900s and all the way through the New Deal era where it exploded and then thereafter continuously grew, we find evidence of the presence of socialists, of Uh, individuals who align themselves with the Soviet Union, who believe in government control, who despise individual rights, who uh, hate the Constitution, who advance an a, a administrative state that has no respect for individual rights, 
that actually violates the, the rights of individuals to trial by jury, to confront their accusers, to a presumption of innocence. Uh, and more and more, they uh, exemplify the kind of tyranny that existed in the Star Chamber courts and the courts of high commission in England, the very, very courts that were deemed tyrannical by the founding fathers and were meant to be condemned by the Bill of Rights, uh, end up be, being recreated in the uh, late 19th and 20th centuries and, and being the primary source of government in the United States. Over three quarters of all the laws that govern us from the federal government are not the product of those we elect, but rather the product of the unelected heads of these agencies who frequently wield combined power, executive, legislative, and judicial, which is, again, the very definition of tyranny that Madison gave us. And we should fully expect tyranny from a party that is both the judge, the jury, and the prosecutor. Uh, these entities are worse. They create the laws that they then charge parties with violating, that they then prosecute, and that they then adjudge. As a result, they almost never find themselves in error. Um, famously, a uh, FTC commissioner uh, rather extraordinarily admitted that the uh, Federal Trade Commission uh, was uh, uh, a kangaroo court in the sense that it always convicted those who were accused, regardless of whether the administrative law judges found in favor of the accused or against them. They would always overturn, <clears throat> excuse me, always overturn every decision in favor of the accused and would always uphold decisions in their own favor. And there is in this no justice. And this tyranny exists in the United States. It's called the administrative state, and it is the primary government that most Americans interact with when they interact with the federal government. I'm glad you're discussing this, because I wanted to discuss it later, but you brought it up. The All these agencies and the heads of these, unelected heads of these agencies, is there a difference between a law and a regulation? There is no substantive difference between the two, except this. In Article III courts, that is the typical federal courts, there is a distinction between criminal and civil law. Any, any law that would deprive you of your liberty would compel you to pay a fine or would take away your right to exist outside of a jail is a criminal law. But when an administrative agency adopts a regulation that takes away your liberty, that takes away your property, that would effectively cause you to be uh, ruined, uh, that is no longer called a criminal law. It is always called civil when it's a in the form of a regulation. As a result, the constitutional protections that are afforded you under the Bill of Rights for uh, prosecutions in the in the criminal context are denied you when they are brought up when you are brought up on charges of violating a regulation. And there are many rights violations that are that take place here that are condoned in the administrative state and would not be allowed in an Article Three court under the Constitution. For example, uh, when uh, the agency denies protection of an Article Three court in the first place, they violate your rights, yet that is always done. 
by administrative agencies that have prosecutions. They deny your presumption of innocence. They deny you freedom from general warrants. General warrants allow for search and seizure of property without restriction as to the nature of the search and the seizure and without need for a judicial approval of it. These general warrants were issued by the Crown through uh, uh, the uh, 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries and were condemned by the Founding Fathers and are expressly disallowed in our Bill of Rights, and yet they exist in the administrative state and are used all the time to gather a massive amount of personal information, financial information, irrelevant information of all kinds, but highly damaging and defamatory potentially, uh, against the accused. And the right to confront your accuser is denied. Frequently, those that are the subject of a prosecution in an administrative tribunal uh, never uh, receive word and are, are not allowed to know who is behind the accusation against them. And there is no trial by jury, which is protected by the Constitution. And there is no right to due process. That is, as we mentioned, prosecution in an Article Three court. It only is made available after the administrative process and prosecution and invocation of punishment is imposed as a final matter by an agency. Then you get to appeal the judgment. But then you're denied an opportunity for a true independent trial because the courts defer to the administrative agencies on their construction of the facts and the law. So much so that they're virtually a rubber stamp in most cases to administrative prosecutions. And so people who are brought into this administrative system are denied their rights, are punished, and have no recourse. And speaking of these extra-governmental entities, and there's one which I I know is probably the most dangerous. Maybe you disagree with me. And it has no congressional oversight. I'm talking about the Federal Reserve, which is not federal, and it doesn't have any reserves. Can you give us your opinion on the one entity, in my opinion, which has hijacked this country and turned it into a nation that is more of a slave plantation? Uh, Woodrow Wilson <clears throat> Woodrow Wilson created the Federal Trade Commission is the principal backer of the Federal Trade Commission, or excuse me, the, the Federal Reserve. And um, it's, it's telling to, to, as the book explains, to pierce, you know, peer, peer into the thinking of Woodrow Wilson. He wrote quite a bit, uh, was quite prolific, was a college professor, um, and uh, expressed his views. And he was a Hegelian. As I mentioned in the book, uh, Friedrich Hegel, who was a collectivist, who was actually the teacher of Karl Marx and the predecessor to communism uh, believed in socialism and uh, despised the Constitution of the United States um, and despised individual liberty and despised Lockean concepts in the Second Treatise on Government defining individual liberty and the necessity of protecting rights. He instead believed in collectivism, believed that uh, individual rights were bestowed upon people by the state and could be taken away by the state to serve the common good and believe that the most uh, uh, vital service an individual could perform in life was to serve the state in advancing the interests of the state. Um, and he also defended slavery. 
and he believed that slavery was just a normal byproduct of the evolution of people, of the dialectic in history, and that there would always be slave populations, and that slaves deserved their enslavement because they were an inferior population to the superior or dominant population that uh, acquired control of them, and that they benefited from being enslaved by being associated with uh, a, a race and a culture that was superior to their own. So that was Hegel's view, and that was the view adopted by uh, slave owners in the antebellum South, and was used as a justification for the Confederacy. And this same concept in defense of socialism was accepted fundamentally by Woodrow Wilson, uh, who was in fact a socialist. He didn't mention that, didn't campaign and state that he was a socialist, but in his writings, he believed that. He, he despised the preamble to the Declaration of Independence, thought it should be eliminated from the Declaration of Independence. And that, of course, is where our philosophy of government exists. And that is where the notion of God-given rights exists and the unalienable rights and the notion of individual sovereignty. He rejected all of those. And so when, he, when it came to the Federal Reserve, it was quite natural for him to take control over people's money through the state and to use the pretext of averting uh, cha radical changes in the money supply and depressions by having a central bank uh, control the availability of money by controlling the money supply. And yet, um, as it turns out, the Great Depression followed the Federal Reserve and the Federal Reserve contributed to the creation of the Great Depression was not the only factor, but was one uh, important factor and has been a bane on the operation of a free market ever since. Well, part of our history that a lot of people don't understand, obviously it's not in our history books in school, was that there were white slaves and they don't want certain ethnic groups to gain wealth, whether they're, they're black or Catholics or Jews, because they can turn their political, you know, their wealth into political power. The example of Joseph P. Kennedy, an Irish immigrant Catholic who made a fortune illegally from selling bootleg Scotch whiskey. And the result, his family became powerful, not only financially, but politically. But one thing about Teddy Roosevelt, and I guess I needed to, to refresh myself in, in history, but why did he depart from the Republican Party to create his own progressive bull moose, the, the uh, moose party? Well, he, he was vice president, and then he became president for a term, uh, and then he uh, left uh, politics, presumably, but really didn't, and then he went on a European tour, and then he came back, and suddenly he was overtly uh, making all of these pronouncements that would make you think he was a socialist, and indeed, he became a very strident progressive. He wore a red bandana which he consciously wore to associate himself with communism and to induce the Socialist Party to leave Eugene Debs and to come and be a part of his bull moose progressive party and to take as many Democrats as he could away from the Democratic Party. Uh, and so he offered, for example, uh, what, what became Social Security. He offered a system of cradle-to-grave protection for people, both against unemployment through a guaranteed minimum wage 
uh, a guaranteed income, excuse me, and also a system of, of welfare that was extensive, far beyond anything any other candidate advocated. And he believed in centralized control. He wanted the federal government to control uh, all aspects of, of individual life and individual choices. He thought that it was preferable for the government to dictate what choices people made because it made it simpler and it avoided things that he considered to be mistakes made by private parties. So, I mean, he was about as totalitarian as you can get uh, in the end when he became this bull moose candidate and lost uh, to, um, to Woodrow Wilson. But uh, people have this misunderstanding about Woodrow Wilson, about Teddy Roosevelt. I explained in detail their true histories in the book. And one of the things about, uh, you mentioned slavery, people are really uh, fed a pack of lies by the 1619 Project of the New York Times and by the critical race theory advocates that the nation is rooted in uh, uh, white enslavement of blacks as its defining characteristic rather than the Declaration of Independence and the struggle for independence uh, that arose in 1776. The idea that they start with is that uh, the first slaves in America were black that arrived in Jamestown colony and were enslaved by whites. And that from that point forward, everything that white hands have touched have permanently uh, uh, destroyed their value and used those things to enslave and belittle and, and uh, deny blacks any opportunities. This is a gross propagandistic distortion of our history and legacy uh, because at the very root of it, truth be told, the first slaves in America were not black, they were white. Four months before the Easter arrival of 20 black slaves, 100 white slaves arrived from Brideswell, uh, Bridewell in England uh, and uh, became the first slaves in America, 100 youth. And then after the 20 arrived, there were for years in the Jamestown colony only, uh, only white slaves. And then uh, among the slaves that were uh, freed from their indenture, all of the slaves at Jamestown were indentured servants. Indenture servants had a rough lot because if the uh, um, property owner uh, went to court at the end of the indenture and claimed that the servant had not performed his duties well, had married without the permission of the master, uh, had engaged in any activities that were deemed to be um, unfit or had failed to produce the level of production expected, the indenture would be lifted and the person would then be ordered by the court to be permanently enslaved. And um, in addition to there being uh, white slaves in America, there were quite a few. Uh, there were not only the English that were brought over, uh, but there were also Irish slaves, particularly when Cromwell engaged in ethnic cleansing in Ireland. He shipped out tens of thousands of slaves to uh, the colonies and uh, among them Virginia. And so Irish slaves, interestingly enough, were the cheapest uh, on the auction block. They could be had for, for uh, 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 roughly one-tenth the cost of a black slave. They were prized black slaves. And 
black slaves were also more expensive than white English slaves. But the Irish had the sad lot of being the cheapest, and that oftentimes led to uh, significant abuse. So Irish slaves in America were among the worst treated slaves. Not to say that blacks weren't treat, ill-treated, they were. Uh, but among the ill-treated slaves, black or black and white, the Irish certainly are among the most ill-treated because they were more expendable. They were less expensive to be had. And they were also grossly detested. Uh, the English lore from Cromwell's time forward against the Irish uh, gave them a, a, bad, uh, a bad rap. And the Irish prisoners who were sent here were frequently among uh, the lower classes and among the uh, petty criminal class. So they were detested as slaves here. In fact, uh, the governor of Virginia railed against the crown for sending over so many criminals from Ireland uh, to the colonies. Uh, but also, uh, in addition to there being um, um, white slaves, there were also freed blacks who were slave owners. And that's an extraordinary thing. Carter Woodson, who is a historian of note, uh, happens to be a, a black historian as well, um, wrote a, a volume in 1924 based on the census records and was able to establish that 13.7% of blacks in the United States in 1830 were free. And that is a, a number of, that equals 319,599 blacks were free in America at that time. And of those, 3,776 black slaves, former slaves who are now free, owned slaves themselves. They owned 12,907 slaves. And um, even from the Jamestown colony itself, one of the slaves that uh, was um, released was Anthony Johnson. And this is an interesting story. He was a former indentured servant in Jamestown. Uh, he bought his own freedom and his wife's, Mary's, and acquired a 250-acre farm in Virginia during the 1650s. He had five indentured servants working for him. One, a black man named John Casser, he, uh, who then sued Johnson at the end of his term of service, indentured servitude, for his freedom. But he lost his case, and as was a common occurrence for indentured servants who sued their masters, Casser lost his case in 1654 when the court ruled that Johnson owned Casser's services for the rest of Casser's life. Um, and there were some rather wealthy uh, individuals who were former slaves who owned slaves themselves. For example, William, William Ellison uh, was a cotton gin maker. He was a former slave. He became a cotton gin maker because he was enslaved to a cotton gin maker who was white. And he learned the trade very, very well. In fact, he ended up making cotton gins that were at least as good, but likely far better than his um, uh, former white master who was a uh, person named William Ellison also. So he obtained his name and he learned the trade and then applied it with great success. 
He was one of the wealthiest free people of color in the South. He was wealthier than nine out of 10 whites. And he owned a large cotton plantation and more slaves than any other free person of color in the South outside of Louisiana, where Louisiana, they had a very large number of black slaves who owned plantations and had slaves, uh, former black slaves, I mean, freed blacks who owned slaves uh, and very large plantations at that. And by 1840, William Ellison owned a fine home, a cotton gin manufacturing shop, 30 slaves, and 330 acres of prime land in Sumter District, South Carolina. So we have the horror of slavery going around and we have um, whites and blacks who are responsible for that. Um, without question, the vast majority of slaves were black in America and the overwhelming uh, majority of slave owners were white. But it is a lie to depict our history in a way that ignores the fact that whites were slaves too, and that freed blacks included among their ranks uh, freed black slave owners. This is why it's important not to cherry pick and eliminate certain parts of our history and not the others. But we have to take a one and only break. But before we take the break, let me just say this. The most extensive destruction of human life on the planet has come not from natural disasters. People think earthquakes and hurricanes and wars, but not at all. It's communism and socialism. And Rudolf Rummel estimates communist governments worldwide have killed approximately 148 million between 1900 and 1999, just 100 years. How many more millions have to die before the entire population of this world realizes this system of death, destruction, and despair doesn't work. And we have one more hour. How can people buy The Authoritarians and all your other great books, Jonathan? Uh, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or anywhere where books are sold. Folks, tonight's program is for all who cherish liberty, and we have one more hour coming up. I'm delighted to have my special guest today, Jonathan Emord. This is Mel Hustlerick, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the member section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin. Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Divinia Water, Pure Organic Sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the members section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe. You want to know.